I had some awareness of what was going on because I had been to Pattaya. You know, I had seen Walking Street. And so there was this peripheral knowledge and understanding of the fact that there was a thriving sex trade. But in terms of the real details and understanding of what is happening and the scale that it's happening specific to human trafficking and then within human trafficking specific to sexual exploitation of minors and of women. No, I had very little real factual data-driven understanding of that reality. This is Until All Are Free. I'm your host, Preston Goff. A few months ago, in the spring of 2021, Nate Griffin found himself preparing for an undercover operation with law enforcement partners and the Exodus Road field team in Latin America. I actually had the privilege to be there in that moment, not in the undercover setting, just to be clear, but alongside the team as they were preparing to sit with suspected victims of sex trafficking. I have to say, the level of expertise and professionalism in that preparation was nothing short of awe-inspiring. And actually, in future episodes, I'm going to be bringing you the stories of these men and women in their own words. But today, I'm excited to introduce you to Nate. He's a film producer, a photographer, a board member at the Exodus Road, and a Delta operative. That means he's on a team of volunteer operatives who are vetted and trained to support the work of our in-country national operatives around the world. Here's my conversation with Nate. Well, Nate, I want to welcome you to the podcast today. Um, You know, I've I've known you at a distance in conversation with David, with Matt, with these gentlemen that we both know, um, and they've had just nothing but glowing things to say about you. And not only the, the way that you... Um, present yourself like in the undercover setting, but also just the way that you, that you think about the work and the way that you think about the world. Um, so I'm just excited to to get to talk with you and to hear more about um, the work that you do and what you're passionate about. Um, so I wonder if you might just start by describing yourself in your own words and tell ah. me tell me what you do. Well, that's that is um, that's a that's a loaded question straight out the gate there. But um, yeah, so I in terms of what I do which is the dude response to describing oneself. Yeah, I work in the film industry, and mm-hmm. so I'm a creative. You know, I work in film and television. Um, I I've came up as a production designer, so for me, you know, the visual, how something looks through the camera and ultimately on screen is what I live and breathe, and um, I do that. I'm involved in the business side of it as well, kind of the executive production and just making sure that if you make a film, it actually gets seen by people yeah, as well. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, that and then, you know, my creative. So I'm a creative for sure to the core. Um, but a lot of what I do now is business. <laughs> and Certainly. so my creative outlet really and the thing that sort of allows me to continue to sort of scratch that creative yeah. itches photography for me. So, um, you know, seldom am I on location without a camera somewhere close to hand for yeah. me. And, you know, that kind of having come up as a painter and, mm-hmm. you know, that being sort of my intro, intro into production design, yeah. 
you know, just getting an image, you know, captured is something that just for me is just there's that's my happy place, you know. So I would say in terms of the consistent creative outlet for me right now, it would be the photography side of things. Yeah. And, you know, as um, the creative director here at the Exodus Road, I can't tell you how many times I've like looked at an image and um, seen in the metadata that, hey, that's a Nate Griffin file. Um, And that's, uh, it's just been a gift uh, to be able to work with that and to see how that passion has like pushed along the the work of abolition um, and the work of freedom. Um, you're also a Delta operative. I am. Uh, yes. So talk to me a little bit about that and what that journey looked like. Like, how did you find yourself on that path? Um, you know, one thing that I noticed about anybody who does this work is it seems like there's always this moment where there's a bit of an awakening to the reality of the crime of human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And it grips you. And for people who are now like down the path and they've committed themselves to that, that was a big like shift for them. And I wonder if you've had the same um, kind of experience and what that was like. I can very easily point to a moment. Oh, man, I guess it was 10 years, 12 years, 10 years ago. I don't even it was a long time yeah. ago. It has to be close to a decade ago yeah. when I was first introduced to Matt. Right. Um, and I was actually in Chiang Mai on a project that had nothing to do with you know, the exit the exit road didn't exist yeah it wasn't time. even a thing yeah so it had nothing to do with that and i was in chiang mai and um a mutual friend of ours who is another gentleman who actually now sits on the board as well um was a part of this other project that i was doing i was doing production design and stuff for this big conference and he was like man my friend matt parker is here in town he's doing some pretty interesting things uh, i'd love for you guys to meet you know can he just come to your hotel room and hang out and tell you what he's doing I'm like, yeah, yeah sure absolutely <laughs> right. of course yeah. you know and so when he came in you know matt is he has this intensity about him he's very laid back and easygoing but there's sort of this smoldering intensity in matt i think that has only sort of grown as he's really stepped into the reality of what he does but even back then there was this sort of fresh fire that was there that was it was tangible you could feel it and when he started talking about the work that he was at that time doing absolutely solo pre-organization pre-support of any kind you know it just was it gave me as it's doing right now gave me chill I had some awareness of what was going on because I had been, because of working in Asia with other clients, I had been to Pattaya, you know, I had seen Walking Street. And so there was this peripheral knowledge and understanding of the fact that there was a thriving sex trade, let's put it that way. But in terms of the real details and understanding of what is happening and the scale that it's happening specific to human trafficking and then within human trafficking specific to sexual exploitation of minors and of women. No, I had very little real factual data-driven understanding of that reality. This initial moment, as Nate sat across from Matt and began to learn the details of how the exploitation of men and women, boys and girls, was taking place in Thailand, would lead Nate down a path towards becoming an undercover operative with the Exodus Road. Now, the Exodus Road only works on cases in the undercover setting under the authority of and in collaboration with local police, and only in a support-based role. 
As investigators, always operating as a team and never individually, gather evidence of human trafficking exploitation, it's often required that they enter into brothels, bars, and other spaces where sex trafficking is suspected. TER's investigative teams utilize best practices and standard operating procedures that emphasize safety for themselves, for partners in law enforcement, and most importantly, for the human trafficking victims that we work together to rescue. Now, the Exodus Road is also highly selective in the recruitment and vetting process for undercover operatives. These men and women are held to strict investigative procedures in alignment with law enforcement best practices that emphasize integrity, character, public trust, and accountability. Initially, decisions that I made in terms of getting involved with the organization were very much practically oriented towards how can I just be an advocate and help. Right. But then, you know, I think it does, and as Matt and the team really began to learn more and understand the necessity for the undercover aspect of what we do, and it, it sort of necessitated there being kind of this niche thing where, in certain cases, a local as much as to some degree they can gather information, you know, they need an outside, an expat, somebody that's a white skin, you know, to to go in there to because of the access that you can get be, simply because of what you look right. like. Right. It yeah. just was kind of normal because it literally is what I do in my real life. You know, I make believe worlds for a living, right. you know. Yeah. And, and so this to me was one of those things where it was just sort of a natural flow into that, initially starting with the practicality of, the more that you're tangibly involved, the better you can tell the story, the better you can advocate, the more authentically you can connect Matt and Laura, and then as the organization grew with people of means. Um, and and then it became, no, this is at every opportunity what I want to do and need to be doing because if not I can me, do it. Yeah, yeah right. if not me, then who? And I can actually, you know, my personality suits the role of, sort of stepping into that other person that you kind of have to become on the surface. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to spend some time talking about like what it's actually like to, to put on the hat and to wear the clothes of that other person, um, to sit across from survivors or victims, um, in the moment. But I want to start us actually at the tail end of the process. Um, there's, you know, uh, when I, when I talk with people about the work of Delta operatives, so many questions arise, like how do they do it? How do they care for um, their mental health. How how does the Exodus Road like support operatives? And I heard recently like about this practice, which is that Delta operatives that go on deployment are asked often to write letters to mm-hmm. the victims that they encounter in the brothel night. I'm just struck by how intentional that is. Um, and you know, as I was in conversation with David, he he was telling me about a song that he wrote recently that was born out of conversation with you but a letter written, written to a victim in a brothel. And I wondered if you might just tell me about that letter. Yeah. Um, so for me, you know, again, like it's a, it's an interesting thing. And when you're trying to sort of regurgitate the story of your experience undercover and the things that you encounter and the things that you see and, you know, it's, it's, um, it's hard to know how to, it's hard to frame that. In this case, you know, I think all of us that do this, there, there, um, there are certain cases which 
they, they don't stop at being cases. They become names and faces that we never forget. And um, um, this is one of those for me, you know, um, this little girl that the operation just really came to life and they're ult- they ultimately ended up being multiple interactions with this this girl named, um, I'm not going to say her name, but um, this girl who her name translates to blue in English or her nickname translates her nickname, to blue. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and at the end of this deployment, you know, like you mentioned, one of the practices that we do is we just take this time to sort of just in whatever format you want to do it, you know, usually it's some version of a letter or a journal entry, something like that. Say all the things that you wish you could have said. You sort of mentally envelop that that person in in a hug, you know, and you say the things to them that you dramatically wish that you could say and yeah. make them believe about yeah. themselves. And to me, that's what that letter was about, you know, and for me, you know, I have I have three boys. My oldest boy, you know, is is um, going to be six soon. His favorite color is blue, you know. And there, there were all of these little things just in my multiple interactions with this particular girl that just made the whole thing incredibly personal, just from a perspective of it sort of sinking into my soul. And not to mention her just childlikeness and and factual childishness you know because of her age and you know just and so this kind of I guess poem slash letter sort of just came out of me that sort of was a riff off of the significance of the color blue you -hmm. know and 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 it was one of those things where I just wanted her to you know and she has many of these children that are victims, you know, they come from very remote areas, you know, they're farmers' children and, you know, fishermen's children and, you know, and they're very, they're rough around the edges. I mean, you can paint them up and put them in a, you know, in a uniform and a costume, you know, and, and you spend just a few minutes with them, especially if you understand what you're interacting with to, to realize that this child is, you know, one... (laughs) one tiny step from, you know, being, you know, uh, uh, in the village, you know, and, and she had this very ragged sort of, um, hand done rose tattooed on her hand, you know, and there were all these little things, you know, that for me were just, they were these poignant little, um, versions of what, could be for her. And they just spoke to kind of these, it was just very easy to tell a story around these things that was the dream, you know, of who, what I dream for her, what I'm very certain she dreams for herself, you know, and, and and so this letter just sort of unfolded and, you know, David and I are partners undercover. We work very well together, just sort of have a very natural rhythm and, um, you know, I sent it to him and I was like, you know, I just, I don't know, here, read it, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and this song sort of came out of it. And, you know, when I heard that, I've never actually heard the the produced yeah. song actually to this day. Um, I've heard the rough of it and, you know, immediately it just sort of <laughs> re-wrecked me in every way.
blue like the dawn, like the wild morning glory. Your eyes sing your song, and your smile tells your story. Petals once trampled underneath in gardens of broken dreams. In early hours, will open east when sunbeams descend. Blue like the dawn, like the wild morning glory. Your eyes sing your song, and your smile tells your story. Mm-hmm. Oh. Soul's got sapphire wings like the butterflies. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Blue like the dawn, like the wild morning glory. Your eyes sing your song. And your smile tells your story. so healing right because you've you've just spent all this time literally like you're so longing to be able to say those things mm-hmm. and it's a unique characteristic of our delta operatives that you know we we don't reveal our cover yeah. um and i think that's something a lot of people don't understand yeah. um talk a little bit about like why that's important like to stay to stay yeah. in scene yeah well the most significant reason is if we've done our job right no one ever knows that that we were in any way involved with a case coming to fruition and someone getting rescued and someone getting held accountable for their their actions. And um, so the whole point, there are many strategic reasons, you know, why our identity is never revealed in terms of being the catalyst for a case becoming a case. You know, one being for our own protection and the protection of of our victims and our law enforcement partners, um, but also the longevity of our ability to operate. Um, And then on top of that, you know, at the end of the day, our goal is to come in and to, to, you know, to, to lift up the law enforcement who are there, who are working. And we want them to have the credit. We want this to be something that is a, a notch on their belt that is they are the ones that we want to be on the front ca- cover of the newspaper yeah. or in the news story, whatever it is, because that's a powerful motivator for them. You know, in many of these cultures where we work, this idea of face, you know, or, or you know, sort of your the image that yeah. you portray is the the paramount motivator, even more than money. Money is a very close second, yeah. you know, and so if we 
can remain in the position to where our actions result in them gaining face. Yeah, brings them um, honor. It brings them honor. Yes, then we're then all that it does is strengthen our position, you know, in terms of being able to effectively build cases. Yeah. So all of that um, is mostly focused right on like Southeast Asian mm-hmm. um, undercover work. Yeah. And we are involved in Latin America. Um, yeah. And I wonder um, if you could just describe maybe some of the differences um, culturally um, that require like variances in the way that undercover work takes place. Um, yeah. Maybe some of the inherent dangers that mm-hmm. don't exist in Southeast Asian culture, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, in Latin America, I mean, almost all of the um, the nefarious activity, the non-legal and legal trade, there, there's go- in almost every situation, there's going to most likely be cartel ties. I mean, you many times are going through multiple locked doors. You're getting armed security pat downs. You know, you're when you're in, you're in, and you don't. You're not just going to get up and run out if something goes sideways. You know, and so. When you're going into those situations, again, in Latin America, we have to have documented audio and visual proof of a crime being committed, of exploitation happening, et cetera. And so you're very much in a position where, you know, there's not an easy out, you know, um, and and as an American citizen, you're dramatically less sort of on a pedestal in Latin America than you are in some of these poor Asian countries, et cetera. Um, and, and two, you know, very often the scenarios themselves, it's important to build much more of a solid, believable narrative. Um, and, and two, one of the interesting things with Latin America as well is that very often when we're undercover, we're undercover with active duty law enforcement that are mm-hmm. task force individuals, you know, and, Oftentimes we're just like, dude, relax. Like you look <laughs> you like a look. police officer yeah. <laughs> right now, like chill. So those kind of things, you know, and so it's just learning to, you know, to balance those things. And again, I th- it's very much the reason that there's sort of a certain personality set, you know, that I think works for this kind of work is you have to be able to adapt instantaneously to a situation, you know, and you have to be able to be super uncomfortable with no evidence of that discomfort available for the person on the other side of the conversation or in, you know, in the setting. Right. And I think you sort of, I don't know that that's necessarily learned. I think you either have it or you don't, Mm. you know, and, um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's end where we started and let's come back to, just, you know, in the podcast world, there's a lot of us, right, that are creatives, artists, people who are passionate about changing the world, making it a better place. And I'm just curious to know, like, um, for you as a creative, as an artist, like, where do you see artists having a role in the midst of, like, the anti-trafficking movement? Like, what's our responsibility to it? Um, And, yeah, like, I'm kind of curious to know just what creative endeavors maybe you have like bouncing around in your head that you're passionate about and really want to see come to fruition? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways. I mean, first of all, in my opinion, if you've been given a platform of any kind, 
um, we have a moral obligation to utilize our platform for the betterment of humanity, period. Let's take religion, let's take faith, let's take God out of the conversation. You know, um, um, it, we have an obligation as creatives, as storytellers, as influencers to not only portray the human story, but to help to alter the human story in areas where there are tremendous fractures. You know, yeah. I think it's our obligation to do that, to speak the truth about what is going on, about the fact that specific to human trafficking, I mean, there are more documented slaves on earth right now than ever in recorded history. That's a massive fracture, you know, mm -hmm. that needs to be mended, you know, and as a creative, you know, the great thing is, is that, you know, we have this opportunity through all the myriad mediums that are available to us to tell that story in a way that that inherently hooks our emotions and reminds us of our own humanity, you know, reminds us of the fact that we are designed and built for relationship, you know, and anything that is an assault on the beauty of the way that we're meant to as human beings engage in re relationship needs to be mended, needs to be fixed, is a problem, you know, and I think as creatives as artists we're very dialed into that reality relationships matter what people say to me matters what people say to me in reaction to my creative output to the projects yeah. that i do to the photos that i take to the stuff i put on screen matters to me it yeah. hurts my feelings or it makes me feel super happy you know and and the reality is is that all of us, every human being, it doesn't matter what the aesthetic of our lives is, it doesn't matter what we were born into, where we're from, you know, we, we are affected by the choices of other people, you know, and as much as for me, how I look at it is as much as it's important to me that people, you know, accept and love what I do as a creative, you know, that same reality is true for every human being on earth. We are affected by the choices of other people, you mm -hmm. know, and our, and, and our own choices, you know. And um, these victims, the current, you know, 42 plus million human beings that are currently being exploited, um, th they are as equally human and affected by the dramatically exploitive and damaging choices of other human beings, you know, as, as I am, yeah, you know, when right. it comes to just how I feel about somebody liking or disliking, you know, a, a photograph that I take or whatever yeah. it is, or an edit that I turn in, you yeah. know, and, and like that is a constant reminder to me. And I, you know, of the fact that we're, that we're not dealing with statistics here. We're not dealing with this sort of far off, detached reality that doesn't really matter. You know, we're dealing with human beings that are as equally important to the human story as I am or anybody that I admire or care about, you mm -hmm. know, and those of us that are creatives by nature that have sort of been tasked and, you know, I'm not going to separate my sense of obligation to being involved in this from my faith and my relationship with God you know, it, I believe that God has designed some of us to effectively communicate through story, you yeah. know, and, and, and he's given us that ability because he wants us to have impact and to affect it. 
and participate in the overall human story and the overall unfolding of what he is doing on this earth, you know? And so for me, it's, you know, the Bible says without being churchy, the Bible says, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto God. What that says to me is we have a choice in how we participate, you know, but choose to participate. And sometimes for some of us, what we can do is just tell the story again, bring people you know, yeah. to an awareness of what is going on. Some of us are in a position to where we get to be like super involved and we get to go, you know, and be involved in the actual rescue process. Yeah. Some of us the breaking of the story. Yeah. yeah. Some of us, it, it is, you know, we we're in a position financially where we can give like uh, there's all of these different things that we, that we can do. And as creatives though, I think the thing that is unique about those of us that are good at telling stories, whether it's with a paintbrush or a camera or fabric or whatever it is, you know, is that we get to we get to do it in a way that is uniquely our own, you know, and we get to be very personally involved in that in that piece of the storytelling, you know, and and I think that um, doing nothing is the only wrong answer. How can people come alongside and follow? what you've got going in the creative space? I mean, uh, you know, we live in a world that's driven by social media. So certainly, you know, I'm on Instagram, like probably every creative on earth, you know, that has access to it. So there, you know, and um, I always, you know, I'm very much involved with the Exodus Road and the storytelling process there. And um, but I would say the easiest, most accessible way is, you know, my my Instagram. Yeah, Yeah. my social handles. Cool. Um, And um, and and reach out like I'm very much always available. DM me if you have questions. Shoot me a text. Shoot me. I mean, you know, I'm I own a production company. And so my contact that's my real contact information on my Instagram. You know, reach out to me if you have a question, if you want to have a conversation, if you want to know how to get involved, call me. Freaking call me. Send me an email. <laughs> yeah. Send me a text. Yeah. You know, DM me. I I believe it or not, respond to those things. You know, we are, whether we like it or not, our brother's keeper and our sister keeper, you know, and we can, there's never nothing that we can do. That's just an absolute fact, you know. And so, you know, pennies make nickels, make dimes, make quarters, make dollars, make millions of dollars. And that's true of anything that is quantitative, you know. There's no increment that that is ineffective, Yeah, you know. And so whatever increment you have, you know, whether it's a penny or a million dollars, give it, Yeah. you know, and yeah. I don't mean that just in the context of currency. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's one conversation. Maybe it's text the Exodus Road website to a friend, yeah. you know, maybe whatever it is, see something that bothers you that you're like, there's something off about that. Make a phone call. Yeah. You know, take it, the next step forward. Make, yeah. Yeah, check yeah. on that person, you yeah. know, if you can. Call 911. Seriously, it doesn't matter. Their job is to check out problems. Yeah. Literally, it's why they're there, right. you know. is it, it, Could it be a potentially embarrassing situation where nothing's going on? Sure. Yeah. But maybe it's the difference between somebody's life being saved. Right. You know, so I, I'm just saying, like. What is know? the currency yeah. of your life as David Exactly, say. and spend it. <laughs> yeah.
This episode of Until All Are Free was produced by me, Preston Goff. Special thanks to our guest, Nate Griffin. You can follow his work on Instagram, and I'll link to it in the show notes. Until All Are Free is a podcast by The Exodus Road. We are an organization of action, and we're bringing about systemic, holistic change. Our core programs consist of training, intervention, and aftercare efforts around the world. You can learn more about our work at theexodusroad.com. Thanks as well to City of Sound, who provided the music you've heard on the intro and outro of this episode. If you'd like to support Until All Are Free, I'd love for you to take a moment to rate and review us wherever you're listening. It really helps. Oh,